Greetings, everyone. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center at the University of Oregon. Welcome to this, the second virtual public lecture in the OHC's annual named lecture series. This year's series focuses on the theme of climate justice, responding to two of the most urgent issues of our moment, climate change and social justice. Advocates for climate justice believe that climate change is a human rights issue and that current social and political structures and environmental policies inequitably affect human opportunities and experiences amidst a changing climate. As with all OHC themed lectures, our climate justice series aims to create space for experts to share their research and knowledge and to foster conversation and understanding. By applying the tools of the humanities, rigorous inquiry, critical thinking, and open discussion to the challenges of climate change and social justice, our speakers are helping educate and inspire us to improve our shared human experience. Before I formally introduce tonight's speaker, I have a couple of brief announcements as always. We will have time for Q&A at the end of the talk. If you have questions at that point, please type your questions into the chat feature of Zoom. You can access that feature by hovering over the bottom of the Zoom window with your cursor. I will moderate and ask the questions. We've also enabled the closed captioning function. Uh, I, I think we have enabled the closed captioning function of Zoom. If, uh, if we have, you can activate uh, the live transcript option at the bottom of the Zoom window. The talk is being recorded and will be available for viewing tomorrow on the Oregon Humanities Center's website and YouTube channel. I also need to give my customary thanks. Thanks as usual to the OHC's terrific staff, Associate Director Gina Turner, Program Coordinator Melissa Gustafson, Communications Coordinator Peg Gearhart, and our Student Assistant Kaya Freeman. During the COVID pandemic, our staff has done an amazing job translating and transferring all we do at the OHC into remote form. I'm tremendously grateful for their efforts. Last but not least, I need to thank the OHC's generous donors, without whom we could not support the kind of innovative humanities research, teaching, and public uh, programming that we do. Currently, we're uh, especially fortunate to be able to benefit from a, a special matching gift opportunity. Supporters can maximize the impact of their gifts to the OHC thanks to the generosity of Amanda and Alex Haugland, who have offered to match gifts to the OHC through December 31st, 2020. You can give at ohc.uoregon.edu slash give, and we'll put that address into the chat box for you. I'm delighted now to introduce tonight's speaker, Robin Morris Collin, the Norma Paulus Professor of Law at Willamette University's College of Law. Professor Morris Collin will present this year's Collin Rowe Thomas O'Fallon Memorial Lecture in Law and American Culture. The O'Fallon Lectureship is the Oregon Humanities Center's longest standing endowed lectureship. The gift establishing the O'Fallon Endowment was made by Henry and Betsy Mayer in memory of their nephew, Colin Rowe Thomas O'Fallon, the son of late UO law professor James O'Fallon and his wife Ellen. We at the OHC are deeply grateful to the O'Fallon and Mayer families for their tremendous vision and generosity in establishing and supporting this endowment, and we are delighted to have members of their families joining us tonight. When we began discussing candidates for this year's O'Fallon Lecturer in Law and American Culture, our goal was to invite a distinguished expert in law with unparalleled uh, justice. We, click, we quickly identified the ideal candidate just up the road from us in Salem, Oregon with Robin Morris Collin, the Norma Paulus Professor of Law at Willamette University's College of Law and the first American law professor to teach sustainability courses in a US law school. Prior to her tenure at Willamette University, Morris Collins was a professor at the University of Oregon's law school from 1993 to 2003. While at the U of O, she co-founded the Coalition Against Environmental Racism's Environmental Justice Conference and the Sustainable Business Symposium, both of which continue into their second decade. She was the founding chair of the legislatively created Oregon Environmental Justice Task Force. She currently serves as the co-lead on the state's Environment and Equity Committee, and she was recently appointed to, the, to Oregon Governor Kate Brown's Racial Justice Council. Professor Morris Collin has been awarded the Oregon Woman of Achievement Award, the David Brower Lifetime Achievement Award from the Public Interest Environmental Law Conference, the Leadership in Sustainability Award from the Oregon State Bar, 
the Campus Compact Faculty Award for Civic Engagement and Sustainability, and the National Environmental Justice Achievement Award from the Environmental Protection Agency for her work with the, environment, the Oregon Environmental Justice Task Force. Tonight, she'll share her incomparable insights on the topic, the geography of injustice and the ecology of reparations. Please join me in welcoming Robin Morris Collin. Thanks for coming, Robin. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I am honored and delighted to be part of the lineup tonight. A special thank you to Ellen O'Fallon and her family for this, their gracious donations that make this possible. We are in the midst of a virus that shows us who we are and what we have become and what we have done. We're in the midst of social conflicts that show us the high cost of treating black people as though we do not enjoy the protection of law, as though our very lives do not matter. And we are in the midst of climate change that is showing us the high cost of greed. Consider for example, that on Earth Day 2020, the skies were blue, the seas were quiet and oil was literally worthless in the stock market of that day. We're in the midst of an economic unemployment, small business loss, even while the stock market soars. We're in a triple crisis of environmental extinctions, climate change, social injustice, economic distress, and a pandemic. African-American culture has an expression, there is value in the valley. And what we mean by that is that in the midst of trouble, there is a valuable, even a precious gift. These painful things show us something and people are rightly suspicious about lies told and enabled by powerful and greedy member, members of politics, science, and occasionally even higher education. People have been lied to and defrauded and abused by rich and powerful people and organizations. From advertising to investing, from big sugar and big tobacco and big oil to their lawyers and government enablers, people lie and nature doesn't. So let's start with nature. Nature is exposing the truth about what we have done to nature and to others. Climate change is making these truths more and more self-evident. The ecology, that we have created for ourselves is killing our planet and us, the most vulnerable first. This moment calls for triage and change. Triage is not justice, especially when it simply reestablishes the pre-existing order in order to transition from triage to change. We must understand the interlocking systems and policies that brought us here. I call this the geography and ecology of injustice. When multiple systems operate together over time, they achieve a synergy. And that synergy operates without instruction manuals or enforcers. Working together over time, they operate in many ways to achieve a goal autonomously. That's how ecologies work in alignment over time. Since the beginning of colonization, public policy at all levels, state, federal, and local has projected a model of nature as a commodity to be carved up and consumed and oppression of peoples and communities to exploit their lands and their labor. Both nature and some people were used as acceptable sacrifice zones to the goal of wealth creation. Subordination of nature and oppression of peoples operated together in multiple interlocking systems to create these sacrifice zones. And this model shaped public policy in finance, insurance, real estate and property law, employment, economic opportunity, housing, health, education, voting, and criminal justice. This shared mental model created a geography that is now visible at the landscape level and demographic level in the land and in the bodies of black and indigenous people 
working together on that same mental image of subordination and oppression. These systems created their own human ecology of injustice that is evidenced by the blown apart social and natural landscape that the year 2020 has exposed. That ecology of injustice will reestablish itself by dynamically interacting to reproduce itself unless deliberately and intentionally changed. Transitioning from triage to change requires that intentional deliberate policy change because the energy of injustice and its geography have set a default point that will return unless it is changed. This same shared mental model that has led to climate change, environmental injustice and a pandemic has wiped out another generation of black and indigenous people. It has done so without any arch conspiracy or grand plan, simply by operating in the way that an ecology works, by interactive systems, engaging each other over time and delivering an outcome. Transitioning from triage to change requires us to confront and change essential elements of the mental model of oppression. Let me briefly outline two key elements of that paradigm. First, vivisecting nature for profit. Ecologists describe in elegant detail how industrialized capitalism vivisected natural systems as commodities, cutting them into unconnected parts and selling the parts for profit, externalizing waste and pollution, eventually impairing the functionality of these generous natural systems. The success of greed spells the collapse of the community, human and other communities. This point is made in many ways from children's stories to adult tragedies. Nature's systems have been poisoned and impaired and human greed seems unable to grasp collapse until it is underway. Let me tell you a few stories. Many of you will have heard the story of the goose that laid the golden egg. A goose miraculously lays a golden egg each day, but soon the, the farmer grows dissatisfied with the daily miracle and decides to cut the live animal open to seize what he hopes are golden eggs within her. She dies. And with her, the daily miracle. Consider the story of King Midas, who loved gold, and he had lots of it, but he wanted even more. And when he is granted a wish, he wishes for the ability to change everything he touches into gold. And he's absolutely delighted until he changes his beloved child into gold too. Finally, consider the tragedy of the commons, a story about what happens when herders are allowed to graze unlimited upon a common grazing area and individuals maximizing their herds collapse the ability of the common area to support them. Some business theorists call this optimizing the parts and pessimizing the system. In addition, some people in communities targeted by their race were transformed by public policy into a drain, a drain down which waste and pollution were and still disproportionately are poured into their local natural systems of land, air and water. But we are connected by nature's infrastructures and our own infrastructures and that connectivity exposes what industrial capitalism has done to nature itself and to human communities. All of us will suffer. Some of us will suffer first and worst. Black, indigenous and other people of color communities are the proverbial canaries in the coal mine. Another story, right? About sacrificing life for industrialized capitalism. Additional evidence of the ecology of oppression is etched into our geography and demography, observable at the landscape level and in the bodies of black and indigenous people and the other people of color. A second essential element of this toxic paradigm 
is to be found in the environmental justice movement and epigenetics. The ecology of injustice is now written into that landscape. The environmental justice movement has traced the footsteps of imperialism and racism into the landscape. Numerous studies have, dis have documented the disproportionate dumping of waste and pollution into communities of color. Let me give a brief summary, but you will find a more fulsome account of this in my latest chapter in the Cambridge University Press volume on environmental justice and sustainability. In 1983, the United States General Accounting Office revealed that even though African-Americans made up only 20% of the entire population, 75% of hazardous and toxic waste sites were located in African-American communities. Race was the most predictive factor in determining the location of these waste sites, more so than property values, home ownership rates, hydrology, or geology. Subsequent studies revealed that industry deliberately, specifically targeted communities that were least able to resist unwanted land uses. Industry avoided more educated affluent communities that were likely to resist noxious, noxious land uses. In 1987, the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice issued the first national study to correlate waste facilities and demographic characteristics. The study was called Toxic Waste and Race and found that race was the most significant factor in determining where waste facilities were located to a 99.9% .9 level of certainty. And that statistic was validated and verified by Deloitte Accounting in a blind study. A follow-up study in 1994 concluded that the trend had worsened and as recently as February of 2018, even under the Trump administration. The EPA confirmed, and I quote, a focus on poverty to the exclusion of race may be insufficient to meet the needs of all burdened populations. The report concluded that people of color are likely more likely to live near polluters, to breathe polluted air, and that on all national, state, and county scales, non-whites tend to be burdened disproportionately as compared to whites. Layered onto this landscape of adverse exposures is the way that social conditions of slavery, conquest, and exploitation have left indelible markers on the bodies of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color in ways that affect contemporary generations and our future generations. These markers make populations of color sicker from diseases ranging from asthma, diabetes, heart disease, and now a pandemic. I'm talking about the science of epigenomics. Epigenomics explores the ways in which social conditions may affect the way a cell in a human body uses genes. While genes do not contain specific racial identity, the social conditions imposed upon the lives and livelihoods of people can change the way human cells use DNA to carry out bodily functions. These changes respond to social conditions and can be passed from one generation to future generations. For example, coronavirus infections affect Black, Indigenous, and other people of color more lethally in every age group. We are dying. Science News recently offered an explanation in part for this factual observation, and I quote, African-Americans' risk of higher exposure to COVID-19 has historical roots including legal segregation in schools and housing, discrimination in the labor market and redlining, the practice of denying home loans to those living in predominantly African-American neighborhoods. Those forces have contributed to a persistent racial wealth gap with African-Americans continuing to struggle to move into neighborhoods with the sorts of socioeconomic opportunities that allow white families to better avoid exposure to COVID-19, close quote. Conscripting people of color to specific areas 
toxifying those physical areas, depriving people of the means to live elsewhere and depriving people of color equal access to healthcare are key parts of an interlocking system that mean in literal terms, we can't breathe. And a whole generation of black and indigenous people are dying. We are in the midst of a virus that shows us what we have done. And while we might not like where we are at, there is no other ethical place to start towards change. I feel I need to say that again. Nobody likes where we're at. But there is no other ethical place from which we can start towards change. The present moment calls for triage. Triage demands that the worst affected must be helped first, insurance notwithstanding. Everyone is affected and some are affected worst and first. In this pandemic, black indigenous and people of color are dying first. Triage should not be confused with equity or justice. Triage like disaster relief addresses the immediate needs without engaging the needs of future generations. Neither equity nor justice is measured by disaster relief. Moreover, triage assumes a return to normal order. In this case, the internalized default of an ecology of injustice. Justice, corrective justice, requires restoration of injured persons to their rightful position, the position they would have occupied, but for the wrong. Both morality and economics tell us this is a good thing for us to do as a society because it is morally wrong for innocent victims to suffer and it is economically inefficient for wrongdoers to profit without paying the true and full costs which fall on others. In a time of crisis and triage, we must do equity first. Equity, as I use the term, means changed outcomes in favor of nature and people who were sacrificed. As a core principle of change, we must commit to corrective justice, incorporating its moral, economic, and intergenerational dimensions. Climate change demands no less. Equity, justice, and sustainability require restoring natural ecosystems and black indigenous people of color and communities that were sacrificed to profit. Environmental reparations restores an essential link between nature and environmental justice communities. To provide justice to present and future generations, environmental reparations must be made to communities injured by governmental and industrial policies and practices. Neither disaster relief nor social welfare goals alone will provide the intergenerational restoration of nature that is required now. We must use this moment that we have been given to change our human ecology of injustice. Environmental reparations are a way to change the ecology of injustice into an ecology of repair. They are not blood money in the sense of cash payment for wrongs done. In my opinion, such cash would likely end up rebuilding and re-energizing the same systems that have created the current geography of oppression. Environmental reparations must be framed to accomplish healing of our relationships to each other and to nature. We cannot heal nature without healing ourselves and we cannot heal ourselves without a connection to nature. And so I would like to offer five guiding principles as a guide to doing environmental reparations. First, equity first. Change 
in favor of equity requires intentional policy targeting better outcomes for oppressed people in nature. Future support in this area, such as budget, taxes, and grants must put equity first. For example, by requiring that equity-based projects be implemented first. The principle of equity first ensures that the human costs exposed by these triple crises are not replicated. And this principle of doing equity first will disrupt the default position of ecological injustice. A second principle, intentional linkage of living natural ecologies and systems with disproportionately historically targeted communities. Acknowledging, honoring, and making amends for our wrongdoing to earth and to other people who were crushed by public policy is an essential link in a new ecology of repair. Let's recognize where we are at. Repair must happen. In order to change the mental model of nature and black and indigenous people as sacrifice zones, environmental repair must be linked to the repair of our most exploited persons and communities. For example, this could mean that every new environmental policy must decrease disproportionate impacts on vulnerable communities. Third principle, radical inclusion of local community. In practice, this means including communities in the development of strategies and projects aimed at restoration and including the knowledge and observations of all stakeholders at every stage from conceptualization and development of metrics to the implementation and enforcement. Where infrastructure is built, BIPOC communities must be included in the planning and the wealth generation from those projects. New relationships must be formed and that requires intentional respectful encounters. People unaccustomed to listening must learn the skills of listening. People unaccustomed to discomfort must learn to live with discomfort. Things will be different. Um, I have written more about this particular principle in the sustainability journal from last year. Fourth principle, land use laws, planning, and development must embrace the use of zoning and planning to accommodate environmental reparations by communities. The profession of planning specifically embraces the principle of equity in its professional ethics. Professional planners need to stand up first and hopefully they can lead developers and business towards this important change in the mental model. And the fifth principle I offer is community capacity building. We must build community cap capacity for self-care. By this, I mean the communities must be empowered to take care of their own land, air, and water. This means rebuilding within communities their own scientific and practical strategies and abilities to engage and repair what is happening in their land, air, and water. This also means strengthening the capacity of community-based organizations to participate in partnerships with government and other partners through training, technical grants and education. This work will require a million local acts of justice, an intricate dance of respect and pardon and goodwill between neighbors. I look forward to that intricate dance of respect and pardon and goodwill between neighbors. I want to offer a few examples to you here, and I welcome yours in the Q&A to follow. 
So let me raise up and lift up the Center for Heirs Property Preservation and Black-Owned Land Trusts. The Center for Heirs Property Preservation and Black-Owned Land Trusts is found online. They help Black families protect and keep their land by training and education, by providing legal services free of charge so that Black families who have inherited their land can keep it. The loss of Black land has been an under, I will say underobserved cost over time. Also, uh, Vice President-elect, I love saying that, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris uh, introduced legislation in the Senate called EJ for All, Environmental Justice for All. And in that legislation, which is quite voluminous, you will find several projects and uh, ideas about how to accomplish this connection, this intentional connection between environmental restoration and the restoration of communities of color. So in conclusion, let me observe that this year in the Valley has given us the gift of time. And when we accept it, there is much to be accomplished with time and imagination. This transit that we are going through with all of its destruction gives us the opportunity to re-educate, to re-examine, to reconnect, and most of all, to rebuild anew. Re-education must include environmental justice. Re-examination must include memory and reconciliation. And we must reconnect ourselves to the earth and the air and the water and with our kin. Let me conclude with this last thought. We must heal ourselves and nature. We cannot heal ourselves without a connection to nature. And we cannot heal nature without repairing our relationships to each other. Thank you for spending this last half hour or so with me and I I hope that there will be a few examples that you can share and questions to be asked. Uh, Professor Pepis, back to you. Thank you, Robin, so much for that uh, extremely interesting and inspiring talk. I would invite uh, members of our audience to uh, share their questions via the chat function of, of Zoom. So you just have to uh, put your cursor down at the bottom of your window and hit that uh, chat function and you can enter your questions and I will ask them uh, to Professor uh, Morris Collin. Uh, let me begin, Robin, uh, with my question um, that goes to the point that you got to at the end of your talk. You, you talked to, to us about uh, the time that we are in the valley now. Um, the tasks that you outline are daunting to be sure, uh, but you I'm struck by the optimism uh, of your argument and in particular by the optimism of the place you get to in the end of your talk. Would you say a little bit more about your grounds for optimism? I still am having a hard time listening to the news these days because every time I turn it on, I get discouraged, but um, I'm delighted to be encouraged by your talk. Can you share some more grounds for your optimism with us? Sure. Uh, and. Let me say that optimism is something that I have had to work on. And so in accepting the challenge, one of the important things that I looked at was what was happening around me locally. When I look at the news, I too feel profoundly pessimistic. And when I look at my neighbors, I find hope renewed. It's not that we uh, share everything or do everything in the same way, but when we look at literally the ground that we share, the trees that connect us, the things that I see on my walk, 
the things, the people that I encounter, the animals, I feel extremely hopeful. And that's why towards the end, um, I, I borrowed liberally from the poet William Stafford. There's a lovely poem, Thinking for Berkey. And he says that justice requires a million intricate steps, a million intricate steps. I believe that too. And it's not that the number is daunting. A million is a big number, intricate steps, yes. But it's the idea that we share a single vision of right relationships, how we should treat each other and how we should treat our land, how we should treat our water. When we share that simple mental picture, those intricate million steps happen and they happen in favor of nature and in favor of our neighbors. I think that's a start towards optimism. <laughs> Thanks for that. Our first question uh, from the audience is from Lisa Arkin, who's the executive director of Beyond Toxics. You may know her. You mentioned in your talk land use and zoning as the fourth principle. Are there good examples you can recommend? Are there things Oregon can do now to address equity in land use? Yes. Hi, Lisa. Lisa is the executive director of Beyond Toxics, which is an environmental justice organization that has done extraordinary work throughout the Eugene area and Southern Oregon, organizing and mobilizing uh, communities. Land use in Oregon is extraordinary. It is an exceptional land use regime and we should rightly be proud of it. Land use in Oregon does something that no other state has done, which is to establish land use goals for our state. And those land use goals already spell out some important principles for preserving farmland, agricultural land, trying to make sure that we preserve certain ecological functions in terms of zoning. Having said that, I would propose that our land use laws could also embrace the use of equity as a goal, embrace the idea of environmental reparations as a goal. I believe that our land use laws, which are so unique anyway, provide a good foundation for us to think about how to move forward. And I offer up Oregon as one potential example. So our next question uh, begins with the observation that uh, extractive corporations are protected by law to destroy, uh, allowed to engage in harmful legalized activities that destroy the environment and communities. How do you um, propose to elevate earth and people and all life above legally sanctioned corporate privilege? That's a tough question and I welcome it, thank you. to employ intentionally, to make corporations more answerable for their activities. Specifically, I think economists would agree with me on this. Economic actors need to pay the true and full costs of their activities. And currently, as the question uh, posits it, they don't. Currently, there are many things that keep economic actors from paying the true cost of waste and pollution, the true cost of damage. We need to dismantle those. There are different ways to do it. One way, and uh, I think this is a way that we could talk further about is to revisit the idea of a corporate charter. People are awfully fond of quoting Adam Smith, but if you read Adam Smith, one of the things that he makes very clear is that economic enterprises, corporations, should be answerable to their communities on a regular basis. In addition, again, let me offer Oregon law as a model. Oregon joined one of the few states that embraced an idea of benefits corporations or B, B as in baby corporations. And those are corporations which are allowed 
to consider the social, economic, environmental benefits that they can provide and not profit alone. And so there are those kinds of legal twists and turns, nudges in the right direction. And finally, uh, let me suggest an internal strategy. Become a shareholder, sit on a board and speak truth to power. There's a bill that will be pending in the legislature, the Oregon legislature in our upcoming session to require more diversity on Oregon's publicly traded corporate boards. That diversity would give a voice to people who have not often been heard in these corporate halls, in these corporate meetings. I urge people to seek out those opportunities to serve and to speak. It's a start. Thanks for that. Uh, the next questioner asks, could you share any information about um, uh, legal efforts and other efforts uh, to defend, uh, to assign to nature rights and to defend those rights? Those are very interesting theories so far, but I'm not aware of any that have had success yet. So for example, there is an idea of uh, creating a statute or some sort of principle, legal principle that would recognize nature itself as a person and giving personhood standing to sue, which is standing is a somewhat arcane legal principle, but it's essential to being able to have a court hear your claims and provide a remedy. Uh, this idea of personhood might help, uh, but uh, I'll tell you my own personal um, my own personal considerations are these: these high level theoretical principles are too fragile at the moment, and what I trust are what I can see, what I can taste, hear, smell, touch, with the five senses. What I trust, what I'm not suspicious of is what I can verify myself. And that in an era where so many people are, as I said, rightfully suspicious, I mean, they're rightfully suspicious about big plans and silver bullets and people lying because we've had so much of that. That's why in my own thinking, I have turned toward community capacity building. Let us see what we can do together on the local level. When we can make it happen in that way, then we don't need conspiracy theories. We don't need any sort of arch uh, level, high level theory to, to have an ecology that works for all of us. Our next question is from William Harris, and he uh, suggests another story to add to your stories of the goose that lays the golden eggs, et cetera, which is the, the, the story of the, life, the lifeboat theory. And he says, in his years of teaching, rarely did white students offer a solution that would require them to be at risk. How does this apply to your notions of reparations? Thank you, Dr. Harris. Dr. Harris uh, and I go back many, many, many years. And I, I wish I could get him to tell us the lifeboat theory himself. But the point, I take the point. What makes me think that privileged people will do something to put themselves at risk? And the answer is this. Their children, maybe. People uh, have been able to live in denial about what is happening, both to nature and to other people. But this year, 2020, has utterly exploded the ability to deny what's happening, especially to your children. They're staying home. They want to know, do they have a future? They will ask. They will get to be militant about that. And I think that they are going to help solidify this sense of a common lifeboat. 
that's a hope. That's a hope. The other thing I want to say to Dr. Harris's question, and I'm going to, I'm going to have to think more about Dr. Harris's question as well. But I do think that we can have the ability to cultivate compassion for one another. Um, and multiracial people will not see that compassion and humanity as constricted or limited by race. And there are so many multiracial people now that I think this idea of blacks and whites being separated, our humanity separated uh, and our lifeboats separated by color becomes less and less tenable in that context. So our next question is a three-part question. And it's an intersectional question. So let me just give you the parts and you can respond to it as best you can. Um, what are your thoughts about the relationship between reparations for unpaid labor and rematriation of colonized lands? What are your thoughts on those relationships and what reparation looks, reparations look like at those intersections? What does radical inclusion of Native American worldviews and relationships to land implied imply for Black sovereignty and ongoing survival? Um, let's see, that's a complicated uh, set. Let me pull out a few strands. When I talk about uh, inclusion, radical inclusion, I mean that we need to include everyone who is here, all voices, all ways of knowing. What that means is that we start with today and where we are today looks very different than where we were 200 years ago, 2000 years ago. I would suggest that we start where we are because as I mentioned before, I believe that's the only ethical place to start. So for example, many people have come to the United States, immigrant people searching for a better life and some may be stunned to find that once they're here, they're not welcome, that they are not welcomed fully, even by other people of color. That's a stunning and saddening realization. We need to start there though. And I believe that we can learn from one another if we are respectful. Rematriation of land, I think that we are able to begin to talk about how to take apart a fabric that has so damaged both people and nature. I'm not sure what that's going to look like. I'm not sure exactly how that's going to be done. And the reason I'm not sure is because I do believe that that is a person to person on the ground kind of relationship. This might sound a little far out, but let me offer this to you. There was an artist who died recently, Christo, um, C-H-R-I-S-T-O, and he used to work at the landscape level. He's done some wonderful things. You can see him on Google. Christo negotiated all manner of voluntary agreements, which allowed him to cross lands, to join lands, to be present on a landscape without regard to these strictures of private property and so forth. He was very proud of the fact that this was all voluntarily done and he never took any government money. I was thinking in my own mind, what would it look like if we could begin to navigate that kind of person to person, land to land, arrangement that would allow migratory animals to pass? If we could weave together a network for the benefit of migratory animals, I think that we can do these things. Um, and I'm not the person to offer up a singular statute or principle that will work everywhere. It's more of this idea of a million local 
acts. And I believe that we can start those conversations. In fact, we have started those conversations. They're nowhere near where they need to be, but they are there. Uh, the next question asks, can you give us an example of uh, where you see the five guiding principles uh, to environmental reparations being applied in Oregon? And if you can, can you say what can be done to build on those uh, that example? I cannot honestly say that I've seen all five implemented, but I see starts on all five of these in different places. Taking equity first, the governor, Governor Brown, has made it very clear that she is in favor of centering the budget, the power of the state on equity. And with help from people like the Racial Justice Council and other uh, partners in the community, we may be able to see equity being done first. You know, there's an expression about being last on the list of good things and first on the list of bad things. And I think so often projects that favor equity are last to be gotten to. They're what you want to get to, but they never do happen. And they're first in that list of things that gets shelved or worse. Um, we want to change that. And I think the, the language is there now of equity first in terms of intentional linkage between targeted communities and natural ecologies. I think we have work to do there in Oregon. I think what we need to really um, take seriously is the work of people like the Black pioneers who have documented uh, the historically targeted communities. And there are others. Um, the Oregon Historical Society has recently done an extraordinary job of documenting some of the places in Oregon that were targeted. What we haven't done is that intentional linkage of natural ecologies in those places. And I'd like to see more of that. I think that requires something like memory and reconciliation to begin to happen. Um, in terms of radical inclusion, Again, Oregon has had some wonderful people who, who do this radical inclusion idea and community capacity building. So for example, uh, it's often thought that water and air monitors are too expensive to put into poor communities and we don't have enough. Therefore, poor communities, BIPOC communities don't have enough monitors to know uh, what's going on with the air and the water. Things smell bad, they taste bad, but you don't know what's in them. Well, we've had some wonderful citizen scientists in Oregon who tell us how to build inexpensive, scientifically validated uh, water monitors and air monitors. So I recommend that people look at Sharon Janassi's work, what's in our land, or I think it's what's in our water, what's in our air. And she shows people how to build inexpensive and reliable monitors. That's what I mean by capacity for self-care and also radical inclusion. Third graders can do that. That gives them something meaningful to work on. Uh, apropos of your comment about water, uh, the next question is from your former student, Adele Emmis, who says, thank you, Professor Morris Collin from your law student from several decades ago. Once again, you've inspired and motivated me and for that, I'm deeply grateful. Uh, here's the question. You're, you point specifically to land use code in Oregon as a place for equity to be advanced. Professor Amos also wonders about the water code and specifically the idea that water is a full privatizable interest, essentially the ways in which the water code makes water a commodity, a, a, a water right as opposed to a public good. Do you have any thoughts about the legal status of water here in the state of Oregon or ideas about particular points of uh, engagement to address the waters of our region in ways that are consistent with the principles you set forward? Thank you, Adele, so nice to hear from you. Several decades 
Yikes. <laughs> that means I'm older, hopefully, than I look. Anyway, um, water. Water law is, oh, let's see how to put this nicely, an atrocity. I, yeah, it, Oregon water law is an atrocity. The way the law has set up water rights is, to me, it can't be described in any other terms and it has, it has to be changed. I have good news though. There's a wonderful water, let's see, watershed planning, uh, place-based water uh, system that the Oregon Water Resources Board has put into place, watershed by watershed, uh, getting neighbors to talk to each other about water in their areas, what they have, what they want to use it for, how they plan to use it. This place-based water strategy is exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about this intricate uh, dance be of pardon, of respect. Um, that's going forward. And I think that it's, you can look on the Water Resources Board, place-based water, uh, place-based water, strategies. More watersheds will become eligible for that kind of an exercise, and I hope that people will take advantage of that. That is how we should be handling water, and it's the human way to handle water. So our next questioner asks, uh, can you share with us a few specific geographic areas or geographic problems or issues in Oregon you'd like to see prioritized for us to pay particular attention to and particularly redress? Yes, there are amazing tools uh, that are available free and online. One is called EJ Screen, and that's an EPA tool. You can look at that screen and determine the cumulative impacts, layer upon layer upon layer. And you can sort them by demography, age, race, and poverty, income, et cetera, age as well. That tool allows you to look at place by place, um, the places that are most impacted by waste pollution and now pandemic. There's another tool that's available through the CDC, and this is um, a vulnerability index. And I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on the exact name, but it is with the Center for Disease Control, and it specifically is about vulnerability. That allows you to see these communities in real time. Um, do I have specific places in Oregon in mind? Yes, but if I start naming them, I'm sure to leave some out. And so I would prefer to refer people to Beyond Toxics, to the tribes, to OPAL, Organizing People Advancing Leadership. These are the nonprofit groups, uh, Cleaner Air Oregon. There are a number of these nonprofit groups that are working hard in their areas to achieve this linkage between targeted communities and repair of the natural environment. They're out there, they're doing the work, and I'm hoping to see more funding and more participation as we rethink our ecology of repair. The next question asks, can you elaborate uh, somewhat on your uh, argument for the need for uh, intimacy with nature. Do you mean simply that we want to avoid man-made hazards like air pollution, waste sites, et cetera, or, and or are you speaking about a more direct exposure to the live natural world or any other ways that you're understanding what that means? You know, I offered that as simply a statement of personal belief. I believe it to be true. I think that it is demonstrably true that we as human beings need nature. 
that we can't really be healthy without it. I'm remembering Vandana Shiva, who wrote a wonderful book called Water Wars. Um, she told a story called about Tulsi basil, which is just a little basil plant. And she said, even in the poorest homes in India, there will be a Tulsi basil plant, just a little plant. And that is there to remind people, no matter how poor they are, that they have this connection. And the connection to the plant is also there to say, I can't save the world, but you, little plant, you I can take care of. From that expression of care to that natural plant can grow a sense of health and opportunity. I see that also in some of the projects in Oregon's prison. Oregon's prison system implemented sustainability in prison. And if you go to their website, you find these astonishing, helpful, hopeful stories about the rehabilitation that goes on between imprisoned persons and living things, either training dogs to be service dogs or learning uh, the techniques of farming, organic farming. Those kinds of connections are what I'm talking about as a necessary element for human healing. And in addition to that, what I'm also saying is we must heal our right relationships to one another. These past four years have been devastating. They've made us into stereotypes, cartoons, as we watch them play out on television. Um, I'm urging us all to reconnect to nature and to each other as a way to heal. So the next question asks, um, what would you say uh, in a discussion, to people in a discussion regarding making polluters pay the true cost of their operations since doing so is actually going to uh, pass that increase in costs uh, to consumers of energy. Hmm. Polluters should pay the true and full costs. The question then becomes, what's to keep that true and full cost from being passed along to others? which in a sense defeats the whole point of making polluters pay. If they pass it through, they aren't absorbing the true and full costs. What they're doing is continuing to make profits without paying the true and full costs. So what I would argue is this, we have regulatory organizations who are supposed to regulate prices of energy, for example, utilities, water. We must make sure that profits don't undermine the efforts to require the payment, the internalization of true and full costs. People cannot continue to extract profits and pass on costs. How do we achieve that? That's a multi-level effort to make sure that that pass-through doesn't happen. But I, that's my best effort at providing sort of a schematic approach to that problem. So the next question is, um, what is your message to leaders of Oregon uh, public agencies who have dozens of social and racial equity policies and programs but continue to make decisions guided by attorneys and risk avoidance that limit true environmental reparations? Well, let's see. I'm not sure that we are looking for leadership in the right places. So I teach a course in law school on sustainability. And in that course on sustainability, we talk about public policies, such as the ones that I've mentioned in my talk. Uh, but that's the exception. Um, and it's only a small class. I get a tiny percentage of lawyers who are interested in that. 
I don't think we should confuse lawyers with leadership. Um, and I wanna take that even a step further. I don't think we should be too quick to confuse agency leadership with leadership. We, the people in a legitimate democracy are the leadership. And what we have to do is to continue to act like we are the leaders and they are the ones to implement. And I realize that we feel disempowered often by the way we encounter government and the way we encounter lawyers. Um, so in that sense, I wanna encourage people to take a risk and to be disobedient at times. This is what uh, uh, Senator Lewis, John Lewis called good trouble. Sometimes you have to be in good trouble. Sometimes you have to do things that reestablish the fact this is a democracy. Nobody is above the law, no matter what your position is, whether you're a lawyer, went to law school, or you know, have an a, a agency leadership position. We need for you to listen to the people. And if I can just say, we have had agency leadership occasionally that has gone actually above and beyond. For example, on the Environmental Justice Task Force, um, one of the early leaders in that was uh, Kurt Melcher, uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife, who's now the agency head. And he sits there with the Environmental Justice Task Force at all our meetings. So we can't paint them all with the same brush. I wish there were more like uh, Kurt Melcher, uh, but, Ultimately, the responsibility is ours. So our next question is a big one. <laughs> um, under our present political and economic system, how realistic is any radical change in environmental policy? Huh. Well, I've never been a fan of what's called realism. Um, I'll tell you, because you know, realism gave us Donald Trump. That's what reality TV does. Realism gives you, gives reality a bad name. Um, I believe, as I said in the talk, we have been given a tremendous gift. We've been given the gift of time and imagination. And so what I respond to in the question is this, realism is limited by what you can imagine. Imagine what it would look like then we know what we're working towards. How realistic is it to imagine change? Gosh, you know, before 2020, I would have said, how realistic is it to imagine that we're all gonna stay home for a year? But here we are. Well, Professor Morris Collin, we've come to the end of our questions from our audience. And I wanna thank you again for this uh, fascinating and inspiring talk and conversation. It's been such a pleasure to host you and uh, thank you for all the work you do and keep it up. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Bye. For more information on other upcoming virtual events sponsored by the Oregon Humanities Center, including the rest of our lecture series on climate justice, and to contribute to supporting exciting humanities events and research programs, visit ohc.uoregon.edu. Thank you so much for watching.